Thank you, girls. That was beautiful. The Savior praying and interceding for you and for me. Well, I invite you to open your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 23. Our subject this morning is, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Let's begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would take the Word of God and to apply it to our hearts as we need it. Father, we know that we're all different. We have some different needs represented here. And the Word of God is like healing balm. It's, it's like a, a better than an energy drink. Father, use the Word of God to form Christ in us. We pray for anyone here today who has not yet been truly born again. Please open the eyes of their understanding that they may see their need of Christ. And we'll praise and glorify you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point in the gospel narrative, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem and pretty much the majority of the Jews were about to reject Jesus for the last time as Messiah. And in this chapter 23, it's actually sort of a sermon, if you will, by our Savior, and he denounces their hypocrisy. And we'll not take the time to read it all, but just very briefly, verse 13, uh, Jesus accuses them of hiding the true gospel. Boy, people do that today, too. Verse 14, they used religion as a cloak for their greed. They wanted the money. Verse 15, they trained their underlings to be more evil than they themselves were. Verse 16, they would major on the minors. Verse 23, they would tithe things from the garden, but they did not live properly for God. Verse 25, they would hide their wickedness with good-looking ceremonies. Verse 27, they maintained the outward appearance of being righteous. Verse 29, they self-righteously justified themselves. And then to finish off this sermon, if you will, Jesus sadly pronounces judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and her people. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now something I'd like to point out to you, just by way of interest, is the first word, or you might just call it a letter, O. O is different from O-H. They are not interchangeable. They're not the same word. You say, well, what, what's the difference? What does it mean? Does it matter? Well, I think it does. And I've done quite a bit of in-depth study on it. I've uh, spent a long time studying the, the etymology here behind the word, the meaning behind the word. And here's what I found out. When you write O-H, it's what uh, the grammarians call an interjection. That means something that's been thrown in for emotional effect. Like the word, wow, that's an interjection. Here, oh, is an interjection. Um, oh my, that's an interjection. Do you see that? So that's O-H. But we don't have that here. He's not saying, oh, Jerusalem. He's not saying that. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem. Now, when it's just the one letter, O, it's what they call evocative. Evocative means something expressed. 
It, it refers to speaking. It's um, like addressing someone. It's a term of address that you would address someone by. Uh, o is used as a term of respect, such as today we might refer to a man and call him sir. Uh, in the Bible, we have, O king, live forever. A great term of respect shown to the king. O king, live forever. In our courts of law, before pronouncing sentence, a court judge will often ask the defendant to rise, and uh, he will address him professionally, and perhaps matter-of-factly, and he may even refer to him as sir before he hands down the sentence of judgment. Now that sort of seems to be what Jesus is doing here in verse 37. He's using a term of respect. And he's talking to a city, I know that, the physical city, but it's the people who make up the city. The city was very important, still is, to the Jewish people. And this is made probably why he addressed the, the city of Jerusalem, because it's so connected with the people. But can we say that when Jesus, who was God on earth, that's who Jesus is, God in the flesh. Can we say that Jesus had no compassion in his heart when he delivered this judgmental sentence upon them? And I would, I'd like to say, yes, he had compassion in his heart. Several days before this, when he was first entering into Jerusalem, he came from Jericho down into Jerusalem. And in Luke 19.41, it says that he beheld the city and he wept over it. So Jesus stood there and he saw the city of Jerusalem. It was the Passover time and people from all over Israel were coming for the Passover. As I understand, the normal population of Jerusalem during the year would have been 100,000. But at Passover, the ranks would swell up to about a million people. And so there were people pouring into the city, even as he stood there, beholding it. And he couldn't hold it in. He started to weep. And so I believe that Jesus, even though he had to sadly give this pronunciation of, 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 of destruction... I believe that he had a heart of compassion. You know, in all of Israel's ups and downs, this was their saddest time. The saddest time when they had their God in the city. He was there. He was the Messiah offering himself to the people. And this was their saddest moment. For they rejected him. The city of Jerusalem, which was meant to be a beacon of hope for the world instead had become a pathway to hell. In verse 37, Jesus pretty much summarizes Jerusalem's history. And he says in verse 37, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. That's a sad commentary, wouldn't you say? That's pretty sad. But yet that was the truth. And then in the following two verses, 38 and 39, Jesus foretold that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And indeed it was, some less than 40 years after he made this pronouncement upon them. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Everything was destroyed by the Roman armies. And the Jewish people 
many of which were put to death, but the ones left living were carried off into captivity. And they've been scattered around the world. And it was only 2,000 years after, in 1948, that God allowed them back into the land as a nation. But folks, they still don't have a temple. In the Jewish mind, the presence of the temple meant the presence of God. That's how they connected. Again, this may well be the reason why Jesus addressed the city, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Will the Jews ever get another temple? The answer is yes. Another temple will be built, but it won't happen until the time of the tribulation. I want you to come tonight because we're going to be talking about the coming tribulation. That's something that every Christian needs to know about. The coming tribulation. And keep it in mind too, because we're drawing very close to it. Come tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to be talking about that. God will allow the Jews to build another temple. It'll be in the tribulation time. And it's during that hard time that God will finally get a hold of the hearts of the people. The heart of the nation will be turned toward him and they'll recognize Jesus as Messiah. But what I want you to notice is what Jesus reveals what God would have done for them. What they could have had, what God would have done. He says in verse 37, look at it. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And then those last sad words, read them out loud with me, those last four words, and ye would not. You know, I got to thinking, I wonder how many broken-hearted parents there are who would gladly receive back their son, their daughter. I wonder how many disappointed teachers there are who would gladly have gone the extra mile in helping a stubborn student. I wonder how many golden opportunities like this have been lost by both children and parents, employees and business people, politicians, and on and on the list goes. Great moments could have been theirs, but they would not. They just would not. I remember at a funeral a number of years ago, I preached the gospel the best I could. There was a young lady who was overcome with grief after the funeral was all over. And I just went to her and I, and I asked her, would you like to know how you two can be sure about heaven? She didn't say a word. But what she did was this, watch me. She put her head down, closed her eyes, winced and just shook her head, turned and walked away. That's how she responded to an invitation. How she herself could know for sure that heaven would be her eternal destiny. Just, no, she would not. Sad. You know, as Christians, we often long to see God do something in our lives. To uh, do something for us. To meet a special need. To answer a prayer request. Or just to come to our rescue. But God seems to be silent and nothing seems to happen. And we, we ask, why is that? Why? 
Why is that? I believe with all my heart that God is ready to do wonderful things, some mighty wonderful things in our lives. I believe that. But before he's about to do these things, we manage to mess things up. We manage to get involved with some worldly things or some evil thoughts or some sins. And so God has to stop what he's doing and the blessing doesn't come because we mess up. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not. Isn't that sad? I find that very sad. Folks, what can we do so as not to stop the blessings of God in our lives? What can we do? And I I believe that there are two very important truths that we need to clearly understand if we are to allow God to continue His blessings in our lives. And the first important truth to clearly understand is this. God knows every detail of our lives. He knows everything there is to know about us and what we're going through, and He knows exactly what we need. He does. Now, I'd like to invite you to turn back to chapter 6, but we'll be coming back to chapter 23. But go back to Matthew chapter 6. Find that now, would you please, in your Bible? Matthew chapter 6. Here we have one of the the greatest sermons ever preached. It was by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And starting in verse 5, the Lord starts teaching about prayer and tells us not to be like hypocrites. These hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. I hope everyone here has a morning time with the Lord. A morning prayer closet, as we call it. And then he tells us not to use vain repetitions. And um, he says here in verse uh, six, I'm uh, sorry, verse uh, eight. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father. What's that next word? Knoweth. For your father knoweth what things ye have need of, and look at that. Before ye ask him. Now you and I, we can't say that about people who depend on us. They come to us with their needs or wants or something, and we have no idea sometimes what they're coming for. They say, can I ask you a question? And we just draw a blank. Uh, sure. We don't know what they want. Not your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father knows exactly what you need and what you're about to ask Him for. He knows everything, 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 everything about your life right now. There is nothing He does not know. He knows more about your life than you do. You don't know how many hairs are on your head. He does. You don't know how many cells are in your body. He does. You don't know how many beats of your heart you've, you've already experienced since 12 midnight or 12.01 a.m. or what do they call it. He does. You don't know how many more days you have left on earth. 
He does. You don't know what tomorrow is holding for you. He does. You can't even remember the details that happened to you from yesterday or last week or last month. He does. If I asked you, what was it like being born into the world physically? You'd say, I haven't a clue. But you were there, weren't you? He knows. He knows everything there is to know about you. That's amazing knowledge. What you're going through right now, any trials and testings, any struggles, any temptations, any thoughts that may be going through your head right this very instant. Maybe you're not even thinking about the sermon. You're thinking about something you're going to do this afternoon. He knows it. He can see it. He reads minds. Maybe someone here today is having a a very unholy thought about the pastor and his preaching. God sees that. There's nothing hidden from him. Everything is like open. He sees it and he sees it all at once. Not just for one person. Not just for one church of people. Not just for one nation of people. But for all people. There is nothing hid from him. He is so incredibly vast and wise and wonderful. All of the greatest computer systems of the world can never come anywhere near close to matching God's mental powers. He is so vast and wise and wonderful. But he knows us individually like a good parent should. And a parent may have five kids, ten kids, fifteen kids. And the parents should know each and every one rather intimately. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't it be sad growing up in a home of, say, twelve kids and your parents don't remember your name? That's a bummer. They don't remember how old you are or your birthday. Uh, what was your name again? What, when, when were you born? Are you even my kid? Wouldn't that be a sad family to grow up in? Not in God's family. God knows His children. He knows them intimately, intimately. It says here, and, and it was Jesus, God in the flesh, who says it. Your, your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. Point number one. The very first important truth to be clearly understood is that God knows already every detail of what you're going through. Every time you want to cry. Every time you get a lump in your throat. Every time you feel any sort of emotion, whether positive or negative. Every time that you've had an injury of any sort. Any hard words spoken to you. Anyone who's who's pulled the rug from under your feet. He knows. He knows all of the, about the temptations that you experience. Temptations to do naughty things. Or to go to places you know are not good. You're tempted, you're tempted. He knows. He knows all about this. God knows every detail. The average Christian must learn to tell the difference between needs and greeds. Would you agree there's a difference? Between needs and greeds, would you agree? All you've got to do is look at little children. We've got a wonderful nursery. We need more wonderful nursery workers for our wonderful nursery. But those children in there really are tomorrow's future. And I watch them often. I watch them running around and playing with their toys and interacting. And these little children don't know what they need. They know what they want. Every one of them. 
Everyone knows what they want, but they don't know what they need. That's why they need godly people in their lives. Good mummies and daddies, good nursery workers. And as the children grow and mature, then they slowly start to learn what they need. And here we are, hopefully growing up. But we too need to learn the difference between needs and greeds. You need a car, but do you need a Rolls Royce? Huh? Oh, I'd never take a Rolls Royce, you say. Ah, what would I want one of those for? I'll take a McLaren. Two million dollar uh, Legal street legal sports car. Yeah, I'll take a McLaren. And what do you need that for? You know, we are being told that we need millions of dollars. That's what advertising tells us. That's what all the lottos tell us. Oh, dream the dream. Oh, live the dream. With these uh, millions that you'll get by scratch and lose tickets. No, it's only a dollar. It's only a dollar. It's only five dollars. Uh, listen, it's not the money. Every time you buy one of those miserable things, you're giving away a piece of your heart to the world. You should be giving it to your heavenly Father. That's where your heart belongs. So this is so very important. God knows every detail of our lives. He knows everything we need. Let's never think that God doesn't know what we need. So that's point number one. This sermon has two points to it. Point number two. The second important truth. And folks, this truth, this second truth may be even more important than the first truth. So I need you to listen very carefully. But it's this, point number two. Suffering comes before success. Suffering comes before success. Now I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew and chapter 26. This is illustrated in the life of our Savior Himself. Matthew chapter 26. Please don't miss this. This is very important. You might forget point number one. But please, don't forget this second point. That suffering comes before success. Now in Matthew chapter 26, look please at verse 37. Here's Jesus with the disciples in the garden. There's 11 of them. Judas isn't there. He's off getting the cutthroats. Judas will be there in a little while to betray his Lord with a kiss. Verse 37, And he, that's Jesus, took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. So this tremendous burden was starting to come upon him. The burden was he was about to bear the weight of the Guilt of all the world's sin. It was coming upon him. Never happened to me. I'll tell you what. My own load of sin is enough to deck me to the ground. How did Jesus possibly take the whole load of all of the sin ever committed or ever will be committed? How did he do it? Because God can do some things we can't. That's why. But it was even a struggle. So we look at it here. In verse 38, he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Now, he wasn't talking figurative. This was literal. The weight of the sin and the guilt and the shame and the depravity and the wickedness and the creepy things that all earth's people are guilty of. 
was coming upon him. If, and we don't have the time to compare scripture with scripture, but angels came and helped him and so on. We could look at Hebrews chapter 5 and how he cried to God with strong tears. We could look at Luke and how he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. This was an incredible trauma upon our Savior. This was like something he'd never, ever experienced before. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Verse 39, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now here, the Lord Jesus was entering into suffering Temptation and suffering like he'd never, ever experienced before. What if Jesus had failed right here in the garden? What if he had fallen apart, came unglued or something like that? What if it all ended right here? You see, that's a horrible thought. Because right around the corner from this horrible suffering was about to come the greatest victory that he would ever, ever, ever have. But he had to go through the temptation and the suffering first. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, you know that he began his earthly ministry at about 30 years of age when he went to get baptized by John the Baptist. By the way, if you're saved and you've never been baptized, you're missing out on an important step of God's will in your life. You need to think about and pray about that. Take action. If you know the Lord is your Savior, you've never been baptized by immersion since you've been saved. I'm not talking about a drop of water on your head when you were a baby. I'm talking about being baptized the way Jesus was baptized, by full immersion. If you've never done that, you need to make that right before God. Your obedience before God is so important. But then Jesus, after he was baptized, went out into the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights he suffered hunger. And then what happened? He was tempted. Satan came to him with three powerful temptations. And he struggled. Make, make no doubt about it. He struggled going through that. But he was successful. And because of that, he enjoyed a wonderful three-year ministry filled with People getting saved and miracles and great preaching. But now this. This temptation here in the garden. This suffering here. This. What he was about to go through was far worse. So infinitely far worse than anything he had ever suffered before. Compared to his 40 days of fasting and his temptations by Satan. You know, this this was like a, an atomic bomb going off. It, it made the, the temptations by Satan look like a picnic. This was really the worst thing he'd ever experienced in his earthly life. And yet, the victory he was about to win on Calvary's cross was greater than any victory he had ever, ever won before. Listen carefully, beloved. The second important truth may be more important than the first truth. It's this, suffering must come before success. Let me put it this way. Your hour of your greatest temptation, your hour of your greatest suffering 
comes right before your hour of your greatest success, your greatest victory. But I can promise you this, if you fail in your hour of temptation, if you fail in your hour of suffering, you will never see the hour of great success. You say, but what if it's too much for me? It won't be because you have a heavenly father who tempers every wind that blows. He knows, he knows the storms that would my way oppose and tempers every wind that blows. Yes, the storms will come, but if you'll hang tight in Jesus, the storms will pass again and the sun will come up and victory will be yours. Let me say it once more. Your hour of greatest temptation, your hour of greatest discouragement, your hour of greatest suffering is there as a test, as a proving ground. And it's there right before God is ready to give you the hour of your greatest triumph, your greatest victory, your greatest blessing. Job in the Old Testament was a man who dearly loved God with all his heart. And God loved Job even more And God wanted to do more for Job. And God wanted to do more in Job's life and through Job's life. And so God allowed for Job to go through suffering. A time he'd never experienced before. And all you have to do is read the first two chapters and it makes your hair stand up. It makes your skin crawl what that man was called upon to suffer. You take your worst nightmare. I don't think you've suffered quite like Job suffered. Maybe you have. If you have, I'd like to hear about it. But Job is a man that loved God. Now, during his time of suffering and temptation and struggle, he did complain, we'll be honest, but he never cursed God like his wife told him to do. He never accused God of being nasty and evil and forgetting all about him. And at the right time, God turned the captivity of Job. And all of a sudden, the storm was over. The sun came up. All of a sudden, God started to bless Job. Now, prior to this, Job had been the wealthiest man in the world. After this experience, God made Job to be twice as wealthy as he ever was before his testing. Isn't that wonderful? That's how God works, folks. God does wonderful, wonderful things for his children. But first, he sets up a little test. And that's why this second truth is so important. Maybe you're experiencing some great temptation these days. Maybe even today. Maybe it was hard for someone to come to church today. Maybe you thought of ten reasons why you shouldn't go to church today. Maybe the devil was there feeding you these reasons. But maybe, thank God you came, maybe this message was just meant for you. I don't know. I do know it's very true. I do know that great suffering always comes before great honor. I know that to be true. That's why I ask you, is there anyone here today going through great suffering? Is there anyone here today that feels like they're being sorely tempted to do something they shouldn't do? I want to encourage you, my brother, my sister, do not be overwhelmed by what seems to be great temptations upon you. You'll have great pressure to quit, give up, 
take off. You'll have great temptation to get angry. To just speak your mind and say some things that afterward you'll regret for the rest of your life. There'll be maybe a great seduction upon you to do something wrong. Maybe horribly morally wrong. Beloved, yield not to temptation. We have that hymn in our hymn book, don't we? Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will give you some other to win. Fight manfully onward. What is it? Dark forces subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. That's a great hymn. I love that hymn. You say, well, what are we supposed to do? What should we do if we're tempted? Well, the Bible has an answer to that. If you go back to chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, we looked at verse 8 already. From verse 9 through to verse 13, the Lord gives us a model prayer. This is a great prayer that will help us how to pray. We come to the end of this model and in verse 13, watch, look at the words as I read them. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have to learn to pray that in the morning. We need to pray that, every one of us. I need to pray that. You need to pray that. Lord, today I could be tempted. Please, Lord, help me to go around the temptation. Lead my steps around it, under it, over it, but not through it. Because, Lord, you know how weak I am. If I were to ask you, how many here are tempted to run out after church and rob a bank? Put on a ski mask and get a gun and run into a bank and say, give me your money. How many would be tempted? And I'm sure no hand would go up. I'd be surprised if a hand went up. You say, oh, I'm not tempted like that. That's, that's not my weak area. No. But I wonder, how many after church get in the car with our loved ones and we're tempted to say a few nasty words. Well, were you listening to that sermon? That sermon was meant for you, you know. It's funny how some people think, oh, that's good for the guy behind me. Oh, that's good for the person beside me. Oh, that lady over here really needs that. Huh? Lord, speak to me. Yeah. See, you're not going to get tempted by the devil to go rob a bank because he knows better than that. He might tempt you for the money. That's why he'll tempt you to go buy lotto tickets. That's why he'll tempt you to go to the casino. Spin that wheel or throw the dice or play the cards or whatever. Get the money. Come home with a big fan of money. Hey, look at this. We're going to live it up. Go and work hard and sell your soul to your, your boss at work so that you can get a raise and come home and say, look at all this money. That's where we're tempted. We're tempted in these littler areas. What do we do? We start the morning saying, Lord, please lead me today around temptation. Let's go to chapter 26. Back to 20. We're going from 6 to 26 here, aren't we? Back to 26. 
We pick up where we left off in verse 39, where Jesus prayed, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Verse 40, He cometh unto His disciples and findeth them asleep. Some Sunday mornings, maybe Jesus would come here and find some of us asleep. What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Verse 41 is what I want you to see. Watch and pray that ye enter not into what? Temptation. If you're not praying, you're going headlong into temptation. Sir, ma'am, if you're not praying, starting in the morning, and hopefully praying a few times throughout the day, you are going to find yourself in temptation over and over and over again. One of the smartest things you can do is dig your well before you get thirsty. Doesn't that make sense? Huh? Oh, it looks like rain. What should I do? Take an umbrella? That might make sense. It makes sense to pray in the morning, Lord, lead me away from temptation. You know how weak I am in this area, in this area. And some people are weak when it comes to alcohol. So what do they do after work? They walk home past the bar, the tavern, the saloon. They walk right past it. (sighs) Oh, just this once. And in they go. You know how dumb some of us Christians are? I'll tell you how dumb some of us are. Well, I'm tempted with the, uh, the love of money. And I, I really want to be a multimillionaire so I can quit my job and spend the rest of my life out on a boat fishing. Boy, that must be God's will for your life. And so uh, what you do is you walk past the lotto ticket wicket. Now, the pastor said not to buy one. He didn't say we couldn't look. He said not to buy one. Oh, boy, there's a $5 one, $10 one, $20 ticket. I don't even know what the prices are. I'm making this up as I go along. Wow, I wonder how many millions I could get for $20. Wow, look at that. See, the, the retailers are pretty smart. They, they put out on a big sign how many millions are up for sale. Right? And so, have you ever gone to a mall or some, you watch someone who's bought tickets and they're scratch and they throw it in the garbage and they scratch and they throw it in the garbage and they scratch and they throw it in the garbage. Have you ever seen that? I've seen that in the mall. You wonder how much of the paycheck has gone in the garbage. Not to the garbage, I'm sorry. To the government and to the retailer. Here's my paycheck, just take it. That's where it ends up. As if paying tax wasn't enough. We have to give the government lots more with these, these tickets. The dumbest thing we can do with temptation is, I wonder, I wonder if I can hang around and, and be able to turn and walk away. I wonder how much temptation I can take before I'm ready to give in. No, no, that's not smart. The smart thing is, Lord, lead me away from temptation. Don't even let me come near it. You say, well, pastor, what do we do if we didn't do that? And all of a sudden we find ourselves in the middle of temptation. And I'm feeling tempted. Oh, I want to get that drink. Oh, I want to buy that ticket. Oh, I want to look at that person, you know, two or three times. You know, a lustful look, that sort of thing. Oh, I'm right in the middle of temptation. What do I do? What you do is you send up a flare prayer and you ask God 
to make a way of escape. You see, that's what he promises, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians, he said, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. The, the doorbell may ring, the telephone may ring, a knock at the door. Someone may come and beckon you. Something may happen, the dog may bark, the baby cry, a screech and a crunch of automobiles out on the street. Something to be your way of escape, if you'll take it. God is faithful. But you know, God is loving. And God doesn't even want you to get in that position. And so he asks you, he counsels you to pray in the morning, lead me not into temptation. But I'll tell you this, before honor comes humility, before victory comes suffering, and maybe someone's here today going through that. Well, look at chapter 23. We're done. Chapter 23. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We could say, O Christian, Christian. Or why don't you substitute those two Jerusalems for your first and last name? Put your name in there. Put my name in there. O Steve White, thou that killest the prophets. Ooh. How often I would have gathered you. I would have blessed you. But you would not. How often God would have answered our prayers, maybe long ago. How often God would have done wonderful things in our lives, but we would not. Instead, we gave in to temptation. Instead, we complained during our suffering. Instead, we accused God of being uh, uncaring or making mistakes. Some people do that and they look in the mirror and they say, God, what are you, what are you up to? Why would you, you have to make me like this? Why did you have to give me a nose like that? Or why did you have to make my hair this color or my skin like this or my ears, one ear? Look at that, God. One ear is lower than the other. Come on, even I could have done a better job than that. And some people complain God to God of making mistakes. Oh, Christian, please don't make the mistake of thinking God doesn't know or understand. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the fatal mistake of yielding to temptation when you're under pressure and suffering. Because James 1.15 says, Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Learn to wait upon the Lord. Like it says in Isaiah 40, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Did you know that thunderstorms are one of a pilot's worst nightmare? Did you know that? Thunderstorms. Pilots hate thunderstorms. And they'll do everything they possibly can to avoid a thunderstorm. And usually they'll try and fly around it. Because thunderstorms can be as high as 60,000 feet. Higher than the plane can go. But sometimes they can't go around it. Sometimes they must go over it when it's low enough. And so what they do, and I think this is very smart, they point their plane toward heaven. And they break through those stormy clouds. 
where the sun is shining. And you know what you need to do when you're tempted, when you're struggling, is you need to point your nose toward heaven. You need to get your eyes on the Lord. If ever you need the Lord's help, it's when you're going through struggle, testing, suffering, temptation. Ooh, there's pressure on you just to blow up. You really need God. You need Him. Don't be like that young girl at the funeral and just bury your head and grit your teeth and shake your head and turn. You'll be the loser. God is a loving Father. Verse 37 suggests that God will answer our prayers when we get right with Him. Pastor, how do I know if I'm right with God? My friend, if you're not spending quality time with God every day, you are not right with Him. How can you be so sure? Because I've read the Bible. Have you read the Bible? In it, over and over, God tells us to spend time with Him. How can I know if I'm right with God? If you are not doing what you already know to be God's will, you are not right with God. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. My encouragement to you is this. In a moment, we're going to stand and pray and hold an old-fashioned invitation like we do every Sunday morning. I want to encourage you to come and spend a moment in silent prayer with your Heavenly Father. Come and bring with you the struggles you're going through, the temptations, the things that you think have just gone so totally wrong in your life, bring those to the altar today. The regrets and the sins you've committed in the past that keep reoccurring maybe and haunting you and bothering you, bring those to God in prayer and ask, plead for His help. Ask the Savior to help you. Strength and comfort to give you. He will carry you through. Let's all stand to our feet today.